This is Andre Polk, and you are listening to Hanging with the Hunter Polks. Yeah. So, who do we have with us today? We Tell have us about it, Jesse. We have Justin Brendan from the Cocoa Pot Tribe. Woo! Right. Nice to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Came all the way up to the Mud Hut today to hang with the Hunter Books. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the, you know, the relations, some of the things that he uh, has found through his explorations in Cocoa Pot and into Quetzal territories as well. Um, we'll hold it. We'll hold him to it. Yeah. <laughs> I've been a big, big fan of your videos. Uh, oh yeah, I've been Cocoa like, now. yeah, yeah. I actually like them, man. Mm-hmm. It's good information and stuff, especially seeing the one with the pictures. Oh, thank yeah, you. Yeah, that was yeah. the recent one. Yeah, I really liked it. <laughs> well, we're gonna have to get you guys down there because uh, about two thirds of those pictures are of just Kachan people. I mean, you can hang them around the mud hut if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> Man, those things, like, they, they are original, like, from the 1800s photographs, and they were just in some, like, Midwestern cowboy collectibles place right. for sale. And uh, we were real lucky that somebody reached out to us to, like, save those. But, yeah, like, it's so cool to, like, see those pictures because it has so many little details about, like, dress, about posture, about, like, the way that people, like, held themselves. You know, it's, it's pretty cool, so... Yeah, so these were actually Quetzan, uh, I guess Quetzan, this, you know, people, mm-hmm. right? And Cocopas. Uh, and Cocopas, right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you want to check those out, they're down at the Cocopas Museum. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you can uh, come and buy and, and just ask Joe at the museum if you're interested in seeing them and put on the white gloves and everything. Else, but <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> How old do you think they are? So they are dated uh, from the 1880s. Okay. So they're they're before any any Cocopas or Quetzans were in the Cocopa uh, or Quetzan. Yeah. Like, yeah, like before any of us were in the like wage economy. Mm-hmm. So it was when the culture was still very much non-westernized. Was so. it pre or post uh, bounties? <laughs> Um, so the, basically, the way that I look at it is, it is um, post introduction of textiles. Okay. So that's that's a big thing. Like when um, Kutsan started wearing clothes, or well, it's when clothes? it's when textiles were used for traditional clothing. So oh, moving from willow bark loincloths uh, to cloth loincloths, um, like that, that's a big transition because that's when you start to see the actual adoption of like material culture from the West, mm-hmm. but not stylistically or anything else from the, the from the Western culture. Hold on, hold on. Did he just say that ribbon shirts? Traditional. <laughs> oh, I can't believe it. Oh, man. Throw them all out. Switch yeah. from what the uh, Willow Bark, right? Yeah. Take off all your clothes, guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd rather well wear a ribbon shirt. It's a lot less itchy. <laughs> Willow Bark. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Have you tried one on? So I've I've tried on the willow bark uh, skirts or loincloths and yeah. and yeah they're they're itchy man. Right <laughs> <laughs> That's why they walk around naked, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there's there was some higher end ones that they used to wear that were made out of agave fiber, but like it was really labor intensive to make those, and so you see like the fancy lads and the fancy gals, they're the ones that were wearing those like <laughs> nice agave fiber ones, but um, yeah, they, willow's not not that great. <laughs> He said, I'd trade all my beans for one of those. Is there a word for for the the loincloth? You know, that's actually cloth? something that I'm trying to find out because a lot of the words that we have are from like the 50s, the 40s, you know, when, when, that, when that part of the culture had already kind of uh, faded away. 
Mm-hmm. It's okay. kind of the same thing with like the flutes and stuff. Like those, you know, a lot of people didn't really remember the words for the flute because the flutes disappeared in the in the '50s, '60s. So, okay. um, recovering those words is really about digging into literature at this point, and then asking an elder and seeing if it sparks something that like. Because a lot of them, they still have that back there. You just have to, like, spark the memory, and then they mm. can say, oh, yeah, I remember that. Have you ever went to, uh, what's that place called? Uh, in Washington, D.C.? The Smithsonian. Smithsonian. Doesn't Francis Densmore have tapes of that? So we were really, really lucky. Um, we got <coughs> all of Francis Densmore's wax cylinders um, we're digitized. Have to to I know, we may have to go. With and they, they, they just got a new recording studio to get those, and they, re- and they sent us um, her complete recordings um, in high-definition, like, FLAC files. You know, if you're an audiophile, you can... The, the big thing that we're trying to do right now is because right. they're so old, there's lots of like you know buzzing and popping and like really quiet parts and you can't quite hear you know, throwing the gourd or you can't quite hear the basket drum in the background and that's kind of interesting because you know like basket drums for example that's something that Kokopaz and Kachans used to have deer songs and uh, well for for specifically for dancing songs too mm-hmm. there's there's this whole series that were called just dancing songs and they're not bird songs and. Uh, not oh. weird songs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're yeah. different. You know, it's 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 really weird. They got a different tempo to them. They got a different feel. Not and, gourds. Uh, no, not right. gourds. We're talking right. basically. It's a cone shaped basket turned upside down, and there's an arrowweed drumstick. That's five arrowweeds that are bound together that you hit it with. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like a jazz drum almost when you think about it. The way that you hit it. Kind of like um, I used to sing Hanya when they would just scrape it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> there was one Hanya, and they would do it like that. They would sit there, like squat down. All of them would do it, and then at a certain point, they point up at the sky with their eyes closed. Mm-hmm. They reference the sun. Mm. That's all I really heard about it. I tried to ask a lot of different elders. They didn't. They didn't really know. Do you guys have any knowledge of that? So that was the interesting thing was actually making the connection to how that transitioned through time because basket making really disappeared when people started to get wage labor, wage labor jobs because yeah. you know you're spending so much time working for the farmer you don't really have time to make these traditional goods and so all of the the elders that are old enough to remember remember cardboard box drums mm-hmm. and that connection of well, what what came before the cardboard box it was the basket drum so there are still our elders who remember like the cardboard box drums being played they remember the songs that they go with um but that old school sound of the drum made out of willow you know i don't know anybody who can make a willow uh, basket anymore and that's mm-hmm. the hard part is trying to find somebody who can recreate that because there is one at the smithsonian actually one of those baskets mm-hmm. and the drumsticks at the smithsonian just waiting to be looked at and learned from i so wonder if you could probably go to another yuma tribe and ask them or hokan and ask them see if hey how do you do this <laughs> yeah yeah so i've i've even reached out to because the only living basket drum players that there are are, are from autumn mm-hmm. and uh even with them, you know, I'm friends with a couple people there that do pottery and basketry, and they said willow basketry in particular is not something that there's a lot of people who do anymore. Most of them do yucca fiber baskets. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, it's that very specialized type of material culture that we're just, we need to find people who have that. Um, it's like with basket hats, like women used to wear basket hats. And you still see that with some of the tribes up the California coast, but down here it's it's hard to find somebody who knows how to form it to the shape of the head. I would talk to Stan Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. In, uh, yeah, 
San Isabel. Yeah, the, all the cumiais, including in Mexico, they still have a lot of that. Like the pottery culture in in Baja California with mm. the cumiais is fantastic. Like, uh, I mean, I'm I'm in awe of their pottery techniques. They make full size. You know, you could you could fit a child inside of some of these pots. They're so big, so wow. they still know how to do that and fire it and not have it explode on them. Explode. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, there's also other stuff up there at the Smithsonian, like feather headdresses, which is something that the uh, Kachan in that picture are wearing. Um, they're wearing hawk. Uh, if I if I and I've been really looking at those with like a microscope, um, I believe that they were hawk feather headdresses that were being worn by the, the Kachan in that picture. Um, there are some pictures of Cocopas with them, and, and usually we had um, buzzard feather for most people. Uh, the old accounts talk about white egret feather being worn by young men who are trying to find a lady. So if you're trying to impress the gals, you put on your white white uh, headdress. Um, and then, of course, for like you know battle or for spiritual reasons, you'd have owl or eagle. But those were only for like they, there's stories that say uh, if you wore an eagle feather headdress, you get severe headaches if you weren't if you didn't have the right dreams before mm. you wore them. So, um, so that whole kind of thing is 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 interesting to find, and we there's a few headdresses actually preserved at the Smithsonian too, which is pretty neat. Yeah, we learned how to make those uh, headdresses, and we made some for the the ceremony, the Kuruk ceremony. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the first time I ever saw them was about ten years ago, and uh, you know I was I had no idea, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, they definitely have a power to them, that's for mm-hmm. sure. You know, I didn't wear one at the ceremony, but I, uh, Zion did. You know, mm-hmm. did you? You know, how'd you feel when you put that on and, you know, moved into that ceremony? It really just made me think about um, the people before me that had the opportunity to do something like that, you know? That's uh, really what I was thinking about, the people before. Not so much about my, myself, how I was feeling at the time, you know? just For sure. Especially, uh, you know, we all had a task, you know, that we had to do, so I just focused on my task and focused on, you know, the person that we were there doing the ceremony for and, like I said, just the people before that were in my position, you know? Mm-hmm. Just, you know, try to have a little, you know, uh, kind of sense of uh, importance, you know, to it. You know, not, not a game or not a joke to be having yeah, such definitely a thing on humility, your head, you know? Definitely yeah. humility. But there's, uh, yeah, I mean, I've seen, you know, Uncle Uncle Preston has, has one that went all the way to D.C. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was on the longest walk, one of those longest walks. And, mm-hmm. man, that was one of the proudest pictures I've ever seen. I, I wasn't there, unfortunately, in person, but when he was, uh, you know, putting that on my cousin's, and uh, you know just what it meant to them. Yeah. You know, you you get a you know picture of it or an image of it. So yeah, those are really interesting. You know, textiles and that's an interesting reference uh, as far as you know looking at the the tribes and like our you know society based on you know those textiles. So what was next after you know we started you know adapting textiles and ribbon shirts? You know, what how did it evolve and what's been lost? Do you think? So. As Cocopa started to get jobs, there was a certain expectation for laborers to dress in a way that was appropriate for the farmers and their families to see um, uh, to see them. So you were basically dressing for your boss's dress code, mm-hmm. and that kind of basically became the norm for all of our all of our people. Where you would have pants and you know trousers and a shirt. Um, there's some pictures I know of, of Cocopas that were involved with like. Um, being uh, working on the riverboats 
and they would get paid very well because they knew the, the river very well. They could keep those ships from getting grounded. And because they got paid well, they would have very fancy textile shirts, like mm. very, very elaborate patterns to the shirt. Um, those giant beaded necklaces that, you know, just, you know, thousands of strands all mm. the way around. It's just incredible. Um, and we, in reference to the ribbon shirt, that's actually been a big question of mine because I had a, an elder come to ask me, um, he's like, well, where did the ribbon shirts come from if we didn't have fabric beforehand? And I'm like, well, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I should be asking you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, that, that sparked an interest in, well, where did the ribbon shirts come from? And we see the very first picture, for Cocopaz at least, of a ribbon shirt in the uh, 1920s um, okay. being worn by a shaman. And he's not wearing ribbons. They're not sewn onto his shirt. They're actually tied onto his shoulders right. and they're just like red ribbons and you see um, a few years later there's a picture of a, a Somerton man kind of holding two boys by the scruffs of their neck I don't know what the mm. context of that photo is but those boys have ribbons tied around their um, shoulders as well so that's the first time you see ribbons and shirts incorporated that makes sense and from there, the way that it became sewn on, the only inference that we have is it's when people started to attend boarding schools. Mm. And I think that it became this mutual process of learning from other tribes about how they incorporated ribbons in the shirts. Um, because you see that same thing across the United States where ribbon shirts really around the 1920s started to spread around the country. And of course, a bunch of different styles, but... Um, I find it interesting that at least here locally, before boarding schools, there was people wearing ribbons on their shirts. So it's that pre-boarding school connection as well. I thought it was also a town rule too, like business rules, like nowadays, you know, shirt, no shoes, no service, mm -hmm. type of thing. You know, that's how it definitely was for Quetzalcoatl. <coughs> I mean, we were, you know, right here on the river, right, mm -hmm. and on the other side of the river too. But when our we hear like when our elders would go to town, you know, they they had like a stash where there was like clothes sitting there, and they you know, would come up to those clothes, that pile, and they would, you know, pick out whatever they wanted to wear and go into town and shop or, you know, do their thing. But, you know, I get it, you know, for, like, people that were going to jobs and doing it that way. Also, that picture with the tree with the clothes on it, too, huh? Mm -hmm. I haven't yeah. seen that picture. Yeah, that was, that's pretty cool. Mm. A lot of our drawings that we do for, like, when we did JWIM, when we did Coyote Stories, we would always incorporate that in the story of the big trance. The, the eucalyptus tree. Okay. We'd always hang a pair of pants in the background. That was kind of like our Easter egg. <laughs> so like, whenever I'd show different people, they'd say, "Oh, I remember that story." And you know, they, they always got a good kick out of it. To us, the kids, they they don't really understand. Mm -hmm. But the older people, they're like, "Oh yeah, that's you know, that's really funny. It's neat." You know, you tell them about it. And we, mm -hmm. Of course, we tell them, but then they're like, "But why?" <laughs> oh, they're, they're still young, so they don't really understand how the world worked back then sure. versus now. Sure. Now they're just like, "Oh yeah." there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you mean Santa brings in my clothes. Why would I need a tree? Exactly. <laughs> um, I heard some, I, I don't remember who told me this, but it was it was from a woman that the women, you know, where the, the dresses came from, where they started wearing those was at, um, you know, funerals because they would, they would want that dress, you know, they would want to own that dress uh, in their life. And then in the end of the afterlife, that's what they would be like gifted with. Like their mm -hmm. families would make them a dress, like a nice dress, like the, the women wore in town. And, you know, slowly the other, you know, members of the family would start wearing mm -hmm. those. And, you know, that was like an honoring thing, uh, the dress. You know, yeah. So. For the women, uh, what I heard is that um, 
they were made to like mimic the the town women what they would wear like yeah. the fringes and the stuff like on the bottom of their mm -hmm. their dress, dresses and stuff so that's why we put the ribbons on them so that's why i heard the dresses came from to mimic what they used to wear in the west or you know whatever sure. um but um i don't know along lines of the ribbon shirts yeah. where those might have came from well but. it's interesting with the dresses too because um i know with coco paws they talk about like you know i mean lace was was common mm -hmm. for some of the town ladies but lace is very expensive right and so yeah. ribbons are a little bit a little bit more affordable um, and the other thing was, is, is kind of like, a, at least for Cocoa Paws, a sign of wealth was that your dress could touch the ground. Once the wage labor economy happened, it was a way to show off your husband's wealth because your husband was working a job that was making enough money where you could afford to buy multiple dresses in a year. Um, but when you go back before that, though, like, the first pictures we have of, of Cocoa Paw women in cloth dresses, it, it was posed and taken by... by um, European or you know settlers mm -hmm. who um, had had them holding their old dresses, had their new dresses on, and basically was kind of poking fun at, at them, saying you know like look, they're they're slowly advancing. And Colonization. Exactly. Saying. It's it's uh, because they were considered to be you know sinful in the eyes of a good Christian woman or something like that. That's mm -hmm. part of the reason that clothing was introduced was to modesty. Um, where you see because we're know, so modest now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's that it's that interesting thing because the missionaries they they were they developed a sense of respect with the community in some ways, like with the, the uh, Jews harp or the jaw harp, mm -hmm. um, gaining prominence within our culture. Um, and I think that you know with dresses, you know, if you see a, a woman who you respect and she wears dresses, then that could have an influence as well. But um, yeah, I think initially it was very much a. Their idea, not ours. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, this is just Chris. Uh, we are accepting donations. Whatever you want to give us, we'll be glad to take it. Even food, uh, maybe a mud or rock. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but, yeah, we are accepting donations. Anything to help. Um, we're all doing this on the bottom of our hearts, and this is all free. And, uh, well, I hope you guys like it. <laughs> so I don't think we properly introduced how you came into all this this information or this this knowledge and mm -hmm. insight. You know, uh, tell us a little bit about what you do. So um, I work as the cultural resource manager for the Kukupa Indian Tribe. Um, I'm Kukupa from the southern part of the tribe. You know, we're, we're have the border dividing us. Um, my grandfather is from Wishpa, um, and my mother was born here in the United States. So mm -hmm. uh, we have. Uh, a connection to both of these these lands and everything, and I'm privileged to work for the American Cocopa and learn about them because growing up I didn't really have any interaction with the American <laughs> Cocopa. It was always the Cocopa down in Mexico. Um, most of this knowledge, though, really does come from just simply listening. Like my my grandparents always taught me to just ask questions and sit there and listen. And uh, my mother instilled that very much into me when I was a kid. You know, she'd bring me to. Um, you know, elders' home, and I would talk to World War II veterans and all kinds of stuff, and just learn and learn to absorb. And uh, so, some of the knowledge comes from from reading historical texts, reading books, looking at pictures, and really kind of pick, picking apart those pictures and learning what you can from it. But the other part is really like listening to a lot of elders and just trying to connect those dots. You know, because everybody's got a little piece of information, and sometimes it can seem like they're not related, but. Um, you know, through through colonialism, our, our 
our cultures have been fractured, like have been deeply fractured, and piecing that 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 broken mirror back together so we can see ourselves again is, is challenging. But it's one of those things that's very rewarding. And as a cultural resource manager, I, I'm very 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 lucky that I get paid to do that. Yeah. Um, because I'll tell you this, even if I uh, don't have that job anymore, this is something I'll spend the rest of my life doing. Do you think you'll ever like um, get into the to, into it to the point where you'll pick up the language and learn, uh, you know, some of those like old old recordings? I mean, there's got to be so much information just in in understanding what is you know being said. I mean, is there is it possible to restore the language to be able to interpret those? I think that that's I mean that's a goal for me. Um, one of my great dreams really is to. Uh, uh, is, is potentially to leave this position and to go and, and live down in LAR with my relatives down there. There's still people who speak fluently Quapa, and to spend an immersive one year of just nothing but speaking Quapa would be, I think, immensely beneficial to me and to my ability to do that, um, to learn and to, and to teach. Because I think that's probably the thing that that is most painful for me is you know like I, I have kids ask me like how to say something. And I'll, you know, go to a dictionary to look it up, and then I'll have to pass it by an elder and make sure I'm pronouncing it right. It's just like, it feels very clinical, and, and it doesn't feel, like, as connected as the way I want to be, you know? Do you, do you have to, like, pick a certain elder? Because if you pick a different elder, you're going to get told two different ways. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's certainly true. One of the things that I think is challenging about <laughs> language is just the fact that we had so many dialects <laughs> and class differences, yeah. and now there's this, there's this idea that there's one good way. Uh, and there's 12 of those one good ways, and, and that makes it challenging for learners mm-hmm. because, was, yeah, you, you get caught up. I'm sure you've experienced that yeah, yourself. That was something I was going to ask you, too, is, like, there's a difference between Kokopo and Kupa, and uh, yeah, that, that's kind of our challenge, too. Like, there's a difference in Kutsan. Mm-hmm. Like, we got the woman tug, we got the man tug, we got the south tug, we got the east tug, the west tug, <laughs> north tug. Okay. <laughs> I mean that that's that's happened. Um, that's happened to what I've learned because I'll always ask my elders down in El Mayor. Um, you know, that's historically would have been the Wea Wea clan, um, the, the the mountain clan, um, which is even historically you read texts from the eighteen hundreds and there were Kokopas up here. They're like, ah, they aren't real Kokopas. They're all short. You know, they're they're fake Kokopas. <laughs> <laughs> so like our language is kind of different down there, and then further what's changed that is Spanish versus English because you have the adoption of Spanish words into our language and I'm sure that that's true with your language as well Um, and then there's spelling differences and and everything else that goes along with that so (laughs) (laughs) it makes it as a learner hard but I think the big thing is that it's an oral thing and it's better to learn one wrong way really good than to learn 12 right ways really bad. So. Well, yeah, what we're finding is that if you learn what's, you know, consensus is the wrong way, mm-hmm. everyone who tells you it's the wrong way knows what you're trying to say. So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yep. there's, there's some, some translation going on there. Yeah, but. yeah. But that's, I, I think that's the key thing, though, is also just being willing to talk to elders that, you know, say other elders are wrong. Because every elder is going to, you know, you know, they have their stories, they have their tradition, they have their families, their clans, they have their ancestors reaching back in the, along their own line. And uh, it's just one of those things where if you talk to all of them, you know, make those connections, mm-hmm. don't be judgmental, don't, uh, yeah. you know, as a young person, it's not our place to really sit there and make judgments, so...
But no, it's it's one of the things I, I'm curious about. You guys is you know like how 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 is your language going? Because I've I've been really in awe of what what Kachan has been doing as far as like getting uh, younger people to speak, learning yourselves, like uh, walking in the room and hearing you guys all comparing words. That's a that's a really cool mm-hmm. thing for me to hear. So. That's all you, Justin. We're getting drunk along your hands. <laughs> I remember when we were in school, like, Stronghearts, they had us there. They did a little bit of language. Mm-hmm. They had us trace our ancestry back. And it was more or less just to say, you're related. Because mm-hmm. we are related mm-hmm. one way or another. The majority of us sitting here are cousins. Mm-hmm. All of us sitting right here come from a common ancestor of the Scalani family. Mm-hmm. And um, when we were doing JOM, um, when I, when I started working there, we started doing language. Mm-hmm. And originally, it was just a thought. Then it started turning into, like, that was your the student's ticket to go outside and play. Because mm-hmm. they're all relatively nice. young. We told them, you guys want to play? That's fine. But you have to, go, you know, you have to learn this. Mm-hmm. If you want to go out there, that's what you got to do. Mm-hmm. And they all were kind of like, ah. But we wrote it on a board um, how we thought it sounded like. Yeah. And we have kids from... TK all the way to high school. Yeah. We had only one high schooler, but he he opted out. But we had kids <laughs> in middle school, and they were all sitting there, like, teaching the younger kids, you know, you say it like this. You know, we tell them, mm-hmm. say one word, you know. Oh, and then they'll say it, and it'd be like, Marik. And they, oh, okay, well, that's a little easier. Now they, they say, well, how do you say hamburger? And then they, right off the bat, they'll say, as fast like that, or even faster. Nice. And these are little guys, four years old, and they love it. Yeah. And they're sitting there, what do you have for lunch? Because we'd all eat outside. And they'd say it, you know, mm-hmm. just as fast or faster, and they'd sit there, laugh, eat. Yeah. And it was really cool, you know, up until pandemic hit. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, just sitting there listening to them, even though it was like the same phrases, because we'd have phrases, you know. Like, yeah. Oh, what's Marek? What do you want? Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't really want to incorporate it, but we just did it anyways. Yeah. Because we didn't want to have them going up to their elders, you know, go it's a modic. And uh, say, you know, hey, you know, I can't say that. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, yeah. You know, but it, it was just, just to kind of, like, get them learning. Yeah. And right off the bat, we, we did have a lot of, like, people come in and say, you know, it's good that you guys are doing that. Language would come in, they'd come in and say, you know, you guys did really good, you know. Mm-hmm. You guys should broaden your horizons, teach them yes, no. I think we did Y, and that one, that was a bad idea, but (laughs) they didn't really do it too much, but they did it to me. (laughs) They never did it to the boss, they always did it to me, but it was really fun. Um, We did at one point do story, I did it story time, and it was where we did coyote stories. Yeah. And we would do it, it I would tell it really fast, and then I'd say, okay, write down a paragraph. Mm -hmm. You guys are at the age where you guys should be writing sentences. What did you like? What didn't you like? Mm-hmm. The little guys get two sentences. What you like? Why? That was it. Yeah. And it'd just be like four words, and then that was it. Mm-hmm. I liked it. Good. That was one of them, and I really liked it. Another one was like, I didn't like it. How come that coyote always dies at this one? How come mm-hmm. this? How come that? You know, what happens? Yeah. And it was really neat to kind of sit there and listen to that, or like read it, and I can go to my boss and be like, you know, I know what these guys are writing. Yeah. And... We wanted to do more. We wanted to do, like, um, gourd making. We wanted to do all kinds of other stuff, but 
we never really got a chance to because of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. We already started talking about like doing doing skits and whatnot. Yeah. It was a lot of fun, but that kind of shut us down really fast. Yeah. I know down down in, in Mexico with the Cucopa, they have taken advantage of the, the pandemic in a way because a lot of kids are at home mm -hmm. to do like smaller home-based instruction um, and uh, and like you know, trying to use technology like Skype and Facebook and things like that to do these types of lessons. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's always great to see that kid get that interest where they like ask about new words like... One of the funniest things that's ever happened was I, you know, I told kids, you can ask me any word that you want, and I'll find out how to say that word, and I'll, I'll tell you. And we had this one little kid walk up, and, he, and he's like, I want to know how to say fart. <laughs> just, just, and I was like, okay, that's what you want to know? Then we're going to find out. And uh, so, we, you know, we taught him how to say it, push it. And, uh, <laughs> push it? Push it. Oh, and, uh... Go ahead, Jesse. Yeah, from Alita. Yeah, I'm not saying nothing. Say it. Matana But yeah, no, like, it was funny though because like they, they, as soon as this kid learned that, it was just like that spark of like, wow, this this is my language and I can say this, and and they said it, and then instantly started asking a thousand more words. So just yeah. those funny little ways, you know. I know in Mexico it's kind of the same thing. Like everybody learns all the bad words when they're kids, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah. But then they start to learn some of the more advanced stuff. Um, and even there's been creative things. Like, I, I have one relative, and, and she told her kids, like, you know, hey, if you uh, if you learn how to speak our language, you know, when the police pull you over, they won't be able to understand you. You can just say whatever you want, <laughs> just stuff like that. You know, there's there's little creative ways that different families do stuff. Um, but, like, any, and I tell the kids, too, any word you learn is a little victory. Because, like... That's like the first step in, in decolonizing is to reclaim just your ability to communicate. So, I think that's probably the most important thing right now. Mm -hmm. People are disappearing, so probably not that many speakers. And probably for you guys and for us too, there's mm -hmm. not that many. Yeah. Um, well, especially fluent, the proper yeah. speakers. Those yeah. those ones are kind of disappearing oh yeah property <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no no I, I i completely get that i mean one of the saddest things that happened was um the late polita uh, she was the last fluent speaker of the Kaliwa language in baja california and she passed away about a year and a half ago mm -hmm. and uh that was kind of one of those like moments that really kind of jarred me because the Kaliwa are already kind of a small people but when they lost her it's like that's that's the chapter closed, and it's just like anything that they do now to try to bring it back is going to be much more difficult than it would have been if somebody would have taken the time to learn while yeah. she was still around. So, and uh, that's why, like, I'm any elder that wants to teach me, I'm I'm just ready for yeah. it. You know, just, <laughs> just tell me when and where, and I'll I'll be there. So, uh, sometimes it's the the more cantankerous uh, elders or you know things like that that are actually the ones willing to teach you, and that's that's awesome to me. So. <laughs> I just wish I was like that when I was younger too, <laughs> man. Like, mm -hmm. like there was so many chances. It's just like, nah, man. I'd rather get drunk. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the priorities thing. Like, I, I've heard that from so many people. Like, you know, my my friend David. You know, he said the same thing. He spent a lot of his youth partying, and now he's older. He's like, you know, I'm I'm, I'm getting serious about the culture, and I'm learning about it. And it's just, I mean, it's never too late. It's yeah, never too late. That's so. true. That's true. <laughs> Until it is too late. You know. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. We, we had a pretty strict uh, directive from our elders, the men that, you know, we've been learning from. 
you know, that basically the, the synopsis of it all is if you don't speak your language into the afterlife, how are you going to know what your ancestors are saying to you? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's, it is about like, you know, not just your, you know, life here, but, you know, you're preparing yourself for that. So, yeah. you know, you should know everything you can get. It's like yeah. singing songs. Like, you know, if, if I was to start singing a song that I'd heard on the radio in Spanish and I don't speak Spanish, that song means nothing. It's Oops. just an instrument at that point. Do you hear the songs on Kuav, the 105.5? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think? It's. I think that that radio, like, just the idea of having a radio station is a really good thing. Yeah. And having that repetition, because I think that that's another thing, is that when kids were growing up 100 years ago, they were hearing these songs being sung every day. Mm-hmm. And that's the way that you learn is it once basically it, it gets into your dreams you know like mm-hmm. because you hear it so much and uh, i think the radio is kind of a way to do that yeah our people you know with that radio station for the last two years on repeat they don't have an excuse they know yeah. all forward and back for sure <laughs> for sure tomas and nobody knows what he looks like but they all know what he sounds like yep yep <laughs> no <laughs> No, we're we're very appreciative of you know anybody you know whether it be Uncle you know doing his efforts to preserve you know Lori what he does you know the, each each of the people that work for the tribes and you know I mean there's definitely still resources available you know to people that want to learn and uh, you know I guess that's kind of what part of our you know initiative here with the Hunter folks is to try and make that information accessible. Yeah. Um, and so you know share some of the resources that you have. We'll put them out there to the people. Uh, like Chris said, you know, we, we like what you guys are doing with the, uh, with the Cocopon now and, you know, getting, you know, the media out there and uh, let us know, you know, how we can help. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's the only way forward for us as, as, as people, as indigenous people is this cooperation, you know, it's, it's building off of what each other's know because, like I said, we're filling in that broken mirror and if you've got a piece of that mirror, man. I'd be really appreciative and vice versa. If I've got a piece I can help you out with, that's... That's just a beautiful thing. So, cool. Well, we we'd love to tap into those uh, wax cylinders one of these days. Like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we've been move. we've been figuring trying to figure out how we're going to get to DC so we can ch- check them out. So, <laughs> uh, so let us know when and where. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we we've got that, and uh, we could bring that by and, and listen to it and, cool. and try our best. Uh, maybe we could have uh, some elders who can understand mm. um, to help out with that because yeah. that interpretation. It's it's kind of scratchy, but uh, for sure, I, I think Dan has a few few of those deer yeah. songs on his radio too, huh? It's on, yeah, they're yeah. on the radio mm-hmm. station actually. Uh, sound like dust? You're talking about dust, huh? Yamaput. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's Dan has, uh, He's got quite a few few songs. It's pretty neat, you know, because uh, you start digging, <coughs> asking grandparents, you know, like yeah. what do you guys have. I was going to say, like, one of the other interesting things is, like, Kokopah flute music, we don't have any any surviving songs that are Kokopah flute music. There's there's no records, uh, there's no recordings, there's no notes or anything like that. But there are, I believe, three Kachan flute songs that are preserved. And they are not recorded, but they are in notation forms. They're actually notes. And we've, we've brought back we've brought back the flutes, so we know how to how to I know how to make those now. But y'all have the songs, and so I think that that would be a really cool way for us to come together and do something. So Jesse has a surprise for you. He's oh, actually yeah. an affluent fluter. 
Really? He what? knows those songs. <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. There you go. Teach me. <laughs> Someone told him that the ladies liked it, so he was like, secretly <laughs> learned it. Uh, the, the Will You Will? Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, Will You Will. They, uh, they talk about it in the Oshaw songs. Mm. There's three of them that talk about it. But the, the way how they used to do it was if you uh, you played it, it was to court a lady. Yes. And they would sit there and then the lady would... I guess get mesmerized by it or enchanted mm-hmm. and should go looking for it. Mm-hmm. And once they found it, now is it actually have one for February? Yeah, yeah. There's a picture of the nice. person playing that, and that was for because, you know, a lot of people celebrate Valentine's Day and all that. Yeah, modern, exactly. modern days we would say snagging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you gotta get your uh, white egret headdress on and get your flute going. Does he have a white egret headdress on <laughs> He probably has. Like no, but he's got on. the body paint going on. He's yeah. got like the full, you know, yeah, Sunday's that. best. <laughs> the original one Friday I night. wanted to get was that one where Chris is out there and he's got his gourd and his tin can laying. <laughs> 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 Uh, yeah, should have painted him up. Yeah, well, the, traditional. <laughs> the, whole, the other thing about that song is <laughs> the, the, the person who played that song is an Escalante. I think it was George Escalante. I believe so. Yeah. And uh, we have pictures of him playing the flute, and we have the notations that he played. So, very cool. D.E.D. Mossy? Huh? Is it still going? We're doing something. Mm. So I have redundancies now, so now this one's going. Okay. And then we never really had a pause... So, so, video stopped okay. a while ago. No worries. Sorry. But we're good. We're cool. So we're supposed anything. to sing or what? Anything else. Sing? Yeah, and what? Hmm? Look, we're... Oh, no. Oh, I just was bringing them over. I was going to hang them up in the back, but I forgot. Kevin, Stevens, he knows a lot of your songs. I don't know if he knows all of them, but he knows a lot of your songs. Yeah. yeah. He knows yeah. instead of, uh, uh, I think, just be on the coffee pump. Oh, yeah, for the that. Yeah. Also knows uh, the Wildcat songs. Mm. I think it's that little. This thing? No, the the metal thing right there. That. Yeah. 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 The other one that I I, I know I've heard about um, from uh, Christy Christy White is the corn songs, mm-hmm. and that was being something that I know that Coco Paz never had that, but that's very interesting to me because of the connection to the earth. Like there's. When it comes to ceremony and song that can like connect directly to like planting or to like earth type ceremonies, um, that's something that's also kind of uh, been been a challenge to uncover. Because we have, uh, I was telling uh, Jesse, we have a, a ceremony for planting panic grass, which the yeah. tribes along the Colorado kind River we can claim to be right one of the few peoples on the planet to have domesticated a. Uh, a species of grain, interesting, which is just incredible. Um, but there was a specific ceremony that went along with that that involved spitting the seeds onto the ground <laughs> and marking the ground with uh, badger claws. So um, I always wondered if there were songs to go along with that. So <laughs> not sure. Is that is that corn song? Uh, what early sings? The kill song. Yeah. said that there were harvesting songs. Uh, that might be what might be what it is. And I don't know. What? What did you say that? Don't even look this way. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was interesting too when um, Lori pulled some out, man. Like he started singing. Mm. Yeah, that was that was pretty crazy. The the kill song. Kill song. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know which one, but he actually said he the knew whole, the songs yeah. after the ones that we knew from the radio station. 
dad yeah, was, just, okay. his dad was the one that taught all those guys. Mm. He used to sing, sing them. He would show them how to do the the shkool, the headdress, the god's eye headdress. Mm-hmm. They all used to wear that and dance around with that. Mm. That's what they used to use in way back, but nowadays I think the only family that does use it is the Emersons, mm. the ones that dance around with it. I have one. I showed it to my kids at the JOMs. This is what they used to use, men, women. Yeah. But only that family knows really how to dance with it. Pretty sure they could dance with it, you know, any of us, but... Wow. Yeah, I've always, been, <laughs> I've always been interested in those, like, family-specific or, like, clan-specific songs, because that's something that I think has also been kind of challenging was with, you know, if, if you want to keep it just in that family and there's no one interested in carrying that on, then those things kind of yeah, disappear, disappears, you know? Yeah, and I always thought about that, too. Our stories, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. some stories are probably gone, but we got some left, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. 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 Hello, this is Ion. Please follow us on social media. Our Facebook and Instagram and YouTube, the way to spell Hana Pucks is X-A-N-A-P-U-K. Kurem Atakaveka. We'll be back soon.